Leonard Lopate at Large. I'm Leonard Lopate. Why is it considered legal for companies to pump dangerous gases into the atmosphere, but illegal for people to do things to stop them? Environmental attorney Ted Hamilton has long struggled with this conundrum. In his new book, Beyond Fossil Law, Climate, Courts, and the Fight for a Sustainable Future, he tells the story of the Valve Turners, a group of climate activists who committed acts of civil disobedience and whose courtroom battles proved to be a major step forward in crafting a new democratic law of climate justice. It's published by OR Books, and I'm pleased that it brings Ted Hamilton, the co-founder of the Climate Defense Project, to our show now. Welcome. Thank you very much. Thank you for the invitation. The modern environmental movement dates back to Thoreau and Walden Pond. When did the movement begin to focus on the impact of climate change? When did we even become aware of that there was such a thing as climate change? Well, that's a good question. I mean, scientists have been piecing together the phenomenon of human-caused global warming for a long time. There's there's uh, discoveries before the 20th century that point in that direction. It really became a pressing matter for environmentalists towards the end of the 1980s. So a lot of commentators will point to the climate scientist James Hansen's testimony in 1988 before the U.S. Congress where he identified in pretty accurate, you know, scientific predictions where we were headed with the use of fossil fuels, building uh, off of that testimony and organizing in the 90s. Environmentalists started to pay attention to the issue. I think it really became a matter of engaged political activism. And there was a turn towards direct action, more confrontational politics and civil disobedience really in the late 2000s. So the fight against the Keystone XL pipeline, I think, represents kind of the emergence of the climate justice movement onto the political scene in the United States. Have mass demonstrations and other actions succeeded in bringing increased awareness of the threats posed by global warming? How much of a political impact have they had in this country? Well, we have to, I think, put a little pressure on what we think of as political impact. If we're thinking about awareness, I think certainly those mass demonstrations and also smaller direct actions of the type that I look at in the book have been successful in in doing that and bringing it to the forefront of American political consciousness. For a long time, issues like climate change and a lot of other environmental issues were considered more matters of science maybe matters of government regulation, something that experts needed to deal with. I do think the climate movement, the climate justice movement, has been enormously successful in reframing the issue as a political conflict, that there needs to be a political battle over energy use and the role of the fossil fuel industry. But if we think about political impact in terms of actually changing the direction we're headed in, trying to reduce the power of that industry and implement a transition to renewable energy, I cannot say that that there's been much success there. We are certainly on a path towards disaster. And although there's a lot of political rhetoric now about doing something around climate change, and we've had some policies, uh, they are certainly inadequate and they don't they don't match what the movement has been advocating for now for years. What about the report issued recently by the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change? Didn't it conclude that nations aren't doing nearly enough to protect the environment. And that's despite the fact that the United Nations is about to hold its 27th UN climate change conference this year. 
Yes, you're you're entirely correct. So one of the problems with the international regime to try to deal with global warming is there's no enforcement mechanism. So Paris Agreement, probably the, the most famous and most comprehensive accord that nations have reached to try to deal with this problem. On the one hand, the the espoused goal of keeping warming under two degrees Celsius and ideally under 1.5 degrees Celsius. Nations have still not been able to voluntarily commit to greenhouse gas reductions that would get us to that goal. But more alarmingly, if we're looking at this from a legal perspective, is even if those targets were met, even if the countries were saying they were going to do enough, there's no way to enforce that. So, yes, on the international level, even nations voluntarily um, implementing, describing plans to keep their emissions low, that's that's still not happening. And so what we see on the international scene, I think, is a, re- is a reflection of a broader issue in our legal approach to climate change, where we're not taking the problem seriously enough, but there are also structural impediments to actually introducing, uh, you know, greener, more justice-oriented environmental policy. Didn't Donald Trump withdraw us from the Paris Agreement for a time? Well, he tried and, to. And now he we're back in it. Has it had any real uh, change, any real impact? Again, we get to the question of what kind of impact. There's a soft impact and there's a soft law of international environmental law where people make commitments and talk about the issue. And I think that can be tremendously impactful. It's important for the nations of the world to commit to a warming target and to talk about transitioning to renewable energy. And then activists and lawyers and others, um, also non-state actors like private institutions, companies, they can pick up on those targets and start to make some changes on their own. But the fact remains that Paris, number one, does not have any enforcement mechanism, but also in the United States, We've never adopted the Paris Agreement as a treaty. It's never passed through Congress. So that allows President Trump to say that he's going to pull out of an agreement that doesn't have the force of law in the United States. President Biden can recommit to it. But we're still in that kind of soft law world where it's voluntary. It's up to people to um, do this of their own initiative. And there has yet to be any legal force to that agreement, either internationally or domestically. Planned actions to limit fossil fuel emissions have been postponed because of the war in Ukraine. Won't there always be a a new crisis that will be given priority over the expensive and difficult solutions to global warming? Right. And I think we can view a lot of what the fossil fuel industry is saying about the conflict in Ukraine as disingenuous. I think it's always a good rule of thumb to doubt what the fossil fuel industry is saying about uh, world crises and economic pressures. So there's good evidence that these companies are inflating prices um, because they reap gigantic profits when we all have to pay more at the gas pump. But yes, there's there's always going to be a compelling reason that can be articulated for not shifting away from fossil fuels, whether it's war, whether it's a cold snap in Texas. These reasons, when you apply scrutiny to them, really don't stand up. We have the resources, we have the technical know-how to be shifting very quickly away from fossil fuels. And I think actually the more important lesson for climate politics from the conflict between Russia and Ukraine is we shouldn't be 
victim to these kind of vicissitudes in global politics, outbreaks of violence, it reveals how precarious the fossil fuel system is. And if we want to control for outcomes like that or for unexpected developments on the global scene, well, probably the smartest thing to do would be to divorce ourselves, not only from this energy source, but from the type of people who control it. It's not just Vladimir Putin. It's also the titans of the fossil fuel industry at home who really do have this enormous degree of control over the way we live our lives and our politics. Including and we, some people in Congress. <laughs> absolutely. I, I have a quote in my book from uh, Senator Brian Schatz of Hawaii, who said, maybe admitted, that the fossil fuel industry has structural control over Congress. I think that extends in different ways to our court system as well. So there's some promise there. We can not only uh, liberate ourselves from a very environmentally destructive and polluting energy source, but also from the very anti-democratic type of economic control that that energy source represents. Well, we were talking about crises uh, intervening, but judging from the extreme recent weather, shouldn't we assume things will only get worse? After all, there were over 60 tornadoes in the United States just this past week. Yes. I don't know how that compares with with, uh, the past. I know there have always been tornadoes, but 60 seems like a lot and a warning sign. It's definitely scary. I think we've seen a lot of warning signs. I mean, look at the fires in the western United States, the ongoing drought increase in severe storms like tornadoes and hurricanes. What the IPCC, Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change Report, that you cited earlier, what it what it tells us is that we're really just getting a taste of where this is headed. Things are already bad, and we're not going to be able to reverse a lot of the environmental effects of climate change. But we know that there's a lot worse down the road. And so even as opposed to what we were talking about earlier, some of the early days of the climate justice political movement, we no longer really need to talk about trusting scientific experts, looking at modeling. It's all around us now, and it's only going to get more serious. So one would hope that that would be a great motivating factor to confront this problem. Is there a set definition of fossil law? Do fossil fuel producers face liability for knowingly selling products that cause serious damage to earth systems and human health? They don't face that type of legal exposure. And that's one of the issues that I want to address in this book. So fossil law is a term that I use to describe the whole network of laws and regulations and also background assumptions and ideas that keep the fossil fuel system in place. And one of the confounding questions that I want to answer is why is it legal to continue to extract and sell these chemicals that we know are very dangerous for us and for the future. Hasn't so the U.S. Un- legal system played a role in consolidating the power of the fuel industry? It certainly has. So we can look at some of the direct ways in which the legal system facilitates the use of fossil fuels. There are very obvious and direct facts like the U.S. government subsidizing the fossil fuel industry, giving them tax breaks. U.S. federal government provides a lot of the leases and permits to extract fossil fuels from publicly owned land. Then if we take a a step back, we can also look at the way in which this type of behavior, this type of environmentally destructive economic activity is shielded from any type of legal challenge. So even though we have something called the Clean Air Act, we've not been able to use it to put coal companies on a transition to renewable energy or to mandate that we 
lower our overall greenhouse gas emissions across the country on some sort of timeline. There just has not been either the political will nor any creation of new law to do that. In fact, what we still have is a system that directly encourages the use of fossil fuels. What's the current status of the Keystone pipeline, that 3,000-mile pipeline that was designed to transport crude oil from Alberta, Canada, to refineries on the Texas coast? So I would like to say that it is dead, although it might be paused. There was a lot of uh, back and forth between the Obama, Trump, and Biden administrations over whether the State Department should issue a permit for the Keystone XL pipeline to cross the Canadian border. Right now, that that part of the pipeline has still not been built, although there have been some calls now in the context of the Ukraine conflict to open that up to facilitate more tar sands oil coming into the United States. But a large part of that overall Keystone XL pipeline was built, the Gulf Coast pipeline that runs from Nebraska to Texas. So part of that pipeline network is there. Keystone I think is on ice, probably not coming back. But there are a lot of other pipelines like in Bridge Line 3. Dakota Access Pipeline right now is having some legal trouble. But by and large, the general picture for pipelines in the United States is they're still being built and they tend to survive legal challenges to prevent them or to shut them down. Well, President Biden denied a permit for the pipeline on his first day in office. But Could the pipeline projects still be resurrected, especially now that Russian oil is no longer being imported? Legally, it could be, because that is an executive decision. That's a discretionary decision by the president and by the State Department viewing political variables, environmental effects. So we can go back and forth from administration to administration or even within one administration. They could make a policy judgment based upon you know some scientific evidence that it's in the interest of the United States to have this pipeline. And that kind of political variability is one of the problems we have to think about when we are looking at fossil law. We would hope that there would be an overarching principle to preserve the climate system, to prevent the use of tar sands oil, given what we know about its effects. But instead, we have a situation where, at most right now, we can hope for a political decision to keep that pipeline from operating. Well, how is tar sands oil different from typical crude oil? Essentially, it I mean, both its extraction and its combustion produce a lot more greenhouse gas emissions. So it's often called a very dirty, dirty fuel because the the oil itself is mixed in with sands that are mined in Alberta. To extract that requires an enormous amount of greenhouse gas emissions for the machinery to pull it out of the ground. And then to be refined, again, you have to use a lot of energy. And ultimately, when it's burned, it produces more emissions than other types of fuels, certainly than other types of oil or natural gas. So that's what makes it so dangerous if we continue to exploit those tar sands in Alberta. My guest on today's Leonard Lopez at Large here on WBAI New York, 99.5 FM, streaming live at WBAI.org, is Ted Hamilton. And his book is Beyond Fossil Law, Climate, Courts, and the Fight for a Sustainable Future, published by OR Books. Uh, You write in this book about the group of climate activists known as the Valve Turners. What led them to take it upon themselves to break the law in the name of climate justice? So the Valve Turners were a group of activists, climate activists, mostly in the Pacific Northwest, Ken Ward, Annette Clapstein, Emily Johnston, Leonard Higgins, and Michael Foster. 
And they've been organizing around climate change for several years. Ultimately, what led to this action was their engagement with the resistance at Standing Rock. So this was largely in 2016 when the Standing Rock Sioux were resisting the construction of the Dakota Access Pipeline on their sovereign territory. That resistance grew into a much broader campaign that brought in not just other indigenous peoples, but also environmental activists. And in October 2016, the Standing Rock resistors issued a call for people to engage in solidarity action. So not just at the site of the construction of that pipeline, but in other places for people to confront the fossil fuel industry and the spread of pipelines. And what that group of valve turners decided to do was to respond to that call and to spread out across different points in the American West and directly engage with fossil fuel infrastructure. They went out and shut down a series of pipelines that were bringing tar sands oil into the United States. In four different states. That's right. So when they were arrested, were they each tried separately? Yes. So Emily Johnson and Annette Clapstein, they performed their action together in Minnesota. But then Michael Foster in North Dakota, Leonard Higgins in Montana and Ken Ward in Washington. Each of those four different actions resulted in separate arrests, separate trials, separate charges. Didn't Emily Johnson, who was arrested in Minnesota, say, I'm just more afraid of climate change than I am of prison? That's what she said. And I think that was essentially what motivated a lot of them was they were staring down the barrel of this very scary climate future. And they had a theory of change that um, by risking their own freedom, risking the wrath of the American criminal legal system, they might be able to, first of all, actually directly interfere with the fossil fuel system by turning off those pipelines. And then secondly, inspire other people to see how you don't need to just wait for Congress to act. There are more direct kinds of things that you can do. And they were hoping that other people would follow their lead and take inspiration from that kind of courageous individual action. Does it require physical strength to turn the safety valves of the pipes in order to block the flow of oil? So it appeared that it took a little bit, but I think what they're action demonstrated was that pretty much anybody can do this. Um, it, w- it was not an incredibly demanding physical task, and all of them were able to do this pretty easily. They were in these remote rural locations. They'd done a lot of research, a lot of study to make sure that there was no risk of a spill or any other danger posed to anybody. And essentially, they walked up to these valves, turned a wheel, and either that automatically turned off the pipeline or they also took the, the careful step of calling the pipeline companies before they, before they took this action, alerting them to the fact that they were shutting off the pipeline. And so in some instances, the companies themselves remotely shut down the flow of oil. And probably alerted the police because they were all arrested, weren't they? They were all arrested. So it actually was the pipeline companies or others who alerted them to the fact that the police were coming. But As you mentioned, they, of course, anticipated that they were going to be arrested, and that was something they knew was going to be the next step of the action, not only turning off the pipelines, but preparing for how they were going to face charges and trying to extend their activism into the courtroom after they'd shut the pipelines down. What possible punishments did they face? I assume that the laws were different in each state, or is there also national, are there national laws that cover all of this? 
Each state does have its own project. Yes. So at the state level, they face charges like trespass, which is pretty typical. And then there are different types of state laws prohibiting damage to or interference with things like energy infrastructure. And some of those charges ran to felonies that carried years of possible prison. Um, In the end, some of these charges were dropped. Some of them were upheld, but all of them, at least at the outset, were facing serious prison time. There was discussion, especially because this was under the the Trump administration um, once we got into 2017, that the federal government might get involved. And the federal government certainly enjoys a lot of power in going after environmental activists. Even a lot of this type of nonviolent civil disobedience can fall under federal terrorism statutes. And the federal government has sometimes used those against similar types of activism. In this instance, that didn't actually occur. The federal government did not get involved. They didn't charge these particular defendants. And so each of their trials was in state court against the particular charges that those state officials had brought. Did the environmental movement as a whole support their actions, or was there fear that this might be a little too extreme? There was a bit of a split along those lines you describe. I think at the time, a lot of people supported this action as part of a broader effort to support the Standing Rock resistance. We do consistently see some elements of the environmental movement saying that this type of activity is too dangerous or it might discourage others from getting involved. It might make all environmentalists look like extremists. But I think one aspect that helped to push against that characterization were some of the facts that came out at trial. So there were pipeline experts who discussed the great care that these activists had taken. They researched what they were doing. They knew exactly how these pipelines worked. And it turned out that there was really no risk that anyone could have been harmed here. So as we started to see more and more people turning to civil disobedience under the Trump administration, I think that their action dovetailed nicely with a broader realization that, again, you cannot wait on the federal government to do something about this problem. There does need to be grassroots mobilization. And this provided a pretty good model about how to do that in a very direct and confrontational way while still being completely nonviolent and safe. And they use the uh, necessity defense. Is that a strategy used when a person faces a situation that requires doing something illegal in order to prevent serious harm, such as driving without a license in order to take someone to the hospital? Right. The classic example might be you're walking down the street, you see a house is on fire, and there's a child on the second floor. You run into the house and rescue that child. You come back outside. It could be possible to be charged with trespassing in that instance because you went into the house without permission. But you could assert a necessity defense if you were ever charged with trespass and say, isn't it better to save children in burning fires than to worry about enforcing trespass statutes? So that's a basic idea of necessity is that sometimes there's a need for people to break the letter of the law in order to promote a greater public good. And in the 1970s and 80s, political activists started to pick up on this necessity defense, which is a very ancient concept, part of the English common law, been around forever. And they started to try to use it in the context of civil disobedience. Anti-war groups and and labor organizers. Labor organizers, anti-war, anti-nuclear power. Mm. They started to argue that, especially in the context of nonviolent civil disobedience, 
it's in society's interest for people to sometimes break relatively minor laws, often like trespass, um, in order to further the social good, whether you're trying to end war, trying to end the CIA's activities, um, trying to prevents nuclear war. So people breaking into uh, congressional offices or sometimes onto military bases to protest the use of nuclear weapons. They would turn to a jury and say, here's why I did this. If you acquit me, you are basically agreeing with the premise that we need more people to do this kind of thing because the law as written right now is not promoting the social good. So you have to establish that the accused had no adequate legal alternative Exactly. You have to prove there is no good legal alternative to breaking the law in that way and that there was some type of pressing imminent harm that you were trying to prevent. And a lot of states require these defendants also to show that in their protest action, there was some reasonable connection between what they were doing and trying to avert or mitigate that targeted harm. So why didn't the judge at the first trial in Washington state allow Ken Ward to use the climate necessity defense? Well, here's where we run into one of the elements of fossil law that can be very frustrating. Judges have tended to take it upon themselves to review all of this evidence and decide for themselves what a jury should conclude about the reasonableness of this action. And in the case in Washington involving Ken Ward, the trial judge there looked at what the lawyers and Ken Ward had presented prior to trial when they were saying, here's the necessity defense we want to put before the jury. And he made a couple of conclusions. First, that there is always a legal alternative to civil disobedience, that Ken Ward could have kept writing letters, could have gone to legislative hearings could have done the type of protesting that might not get you arrested. More troublingly, though, the judge went on to say that climate science is a matter of controversy. People have lots of different views about climate change, and he didn't want to use his courtroom as a sort of referendum on whether global warming is real or not. So he wouldn't even acknowledge that there was a legitimate harm to be targeted here. And what that decision indicates and what makes it characteristic of a lot of the ways in which courts have dealt with the problem of climate change is they sort of want to wash their hands of the issue. They see that there's a lot of controversy surrounding climate change. And so they don't think it's proper for a judge or for a courthouse to be deliberating on a very controversial and pressing political matter like climate change. But so didn't in that one of the jurors conclude that Ward's intent wasn't to break the law, but to make a point about climate change? Uh, did that have an impact on the jury's decision uh, to not reach a decision? So I think it did. What happened here was that the defense, Ken Ward's defense, was not able to make that full necessity argument. And a full argument would include expert witnesses like climate scientists, political scientists talking about the non-availability of legitimate legal alternatives or the fossil fuel industry's capture of the political system. And yet, despite not being able to make that full argument, Ken Ward was able to compellingly talk about his own motivations and why he was engaged in climate activism. And in that first trial, uh, he got a hung jury. They could not agree on convicting him. So he was so tried again. Question, what happened with the second trial? And then on the second trial, he was convicted of two charges, acquitted of one. And what those jury decisions strongly seem to indicate 
is that the jury was certainly open to this idea that his action was necessary. Even in the absence of all that good necessity evidence, they weren't willing to convict him. And they're kind of funny trials when you think about it, because Ken Ward is admitting to all the facts. He says, yes, I went out there and I turned this pipeline and I shut it off. And there's not much to argue about with the prosecutor in terms of what actually happened. And still the jury um, couldn't really find him guilty on all charges, which would suggest that that judge's decision was quite wrong. The judge was saying what he thought a reasonable jury could conclude. And it turns out that juries are actually quite open to this type of argument. On the other hand, weren't the defendants in the next two trials in North Dakota and Montana more conservative states, I would say, than Washington? Weren't they convicted? And, and how severe were the penalties? They were. And the way those courts, those cases worked out was quite similar. A necessity defense was not allowed by the judge. The judge made a decision without sending it to the jury to preclude all this evidence. Michael Foster in North Dakota was convicted. Uh, he was sentenced to a year in prison, ended up spending five months there. Leonard Higgins in Montana was also convicted. He received a suspended sentence, so he didn't actually have to go to jail or prison himself, but he did have to provide some funds and restitution to the pipeline company. Uh, by the time of the fourth trial in Minnesota, what did the defense learn from observing the previous three? So when we were considering how best to argue these trials, at first we had... When you say really, we, were you involved? I was involved. So I, uh, as a member of the Climate Defense Project, was one of very large legal teams working on these cases. Civil Liberties Defense Center, with an amazing attorney named Lauren Regan, helped to coordinate the legal defense. And in each state, we had local counsel who knew a lot more about local judges, local courts, and local laws. We all got together and worked together on these four different cases. And over the course of these several years that these cases took place, one different approach that we took was moving from emphasizing the severity of the climate crisis. So some of the early briefs went on about what the latest IPCC report said, the severity of the climate crisis, what was coming down the road, et cetera. We moved to making more procedural constitutional arguments. So having learned from what the judge did in Washington, we decided to frame the issues by the time we got to the fourth trial in Minnesota more around ideas of procedural and constitutional rights. The Constitution guarantees a defendant the right to a full defense. So what we tried to argue there, what the defendants in Minnesota put forward as their strongest argument, was that they had a constitutional entitlement to argue what they had done to the jury in all its fullness, talking about necessity, talking about their motivations. So rather than a judge deciding before the trials even started what kind of evidence is permissible, let's respect that constitutional right, get the evidence out there, and let the juries decide whether or not legal alternatives existed, the harm was imminent, it was reasonable for them to do this, et cetera. And that proved to be a successful approach in that Minnesota trial. Wasn't it the first time an appellate court had sanctioned the use of the climate necessity defense, uh, which strikes me as a surprise ruling considered, uh, considering what had happened earlier? They were acquitted without having to present their case. Right. So that was an enormous victory for the movement overall. We had an appellate court recognizing that this defense is legitimate. And to put that in a little bit of context, 
when this case began and there'd been a few attempts at climate necessity defenses prior to this as well, lots of different courageous activists and great lawyers around the country had attempted climate necessity defenses. It generally been seen as a fringe theory that no serious judge would accept. But then within a few short years and only within a couple of years after the Valve Turner's action, we had a state appellate court in Minnesota granting this. Ultimately, what happened in Washington was the same thing, a high state court recognizing that this is a legitimate use of the necessity defense. And in the Minnesota case, just to get back to what you were speaking about, when the appellate court allowed that defense to go forward, what happened was at trial, the state made its case, tried to argue that there'd been damage to a pipeline. But it turned out that Emily Johnson and Annette Klapstein hadn't damaged the pipeline at all. They had cut a padlock to get onto the pipeline facility. But again, because they knew what they were doing, they researched how to shut down a pipeline in a safe manner. Nothing was harmed there. And so when the judge looked at what the prosecution had said already, he decided, you have not even made an outline case of a crime here. There's no damage to the pipeline. The defense didn't even have to speak. He dismissed the charges and they walked free. You're listening to Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. conversation with Ted Hamilton. If you sign up to become a member of WBAI during today's show with a contribution of $50 or more, you can receive a free copy of the book we're discussing, Beyond Fossil Law, Climate, Courts, and the Fight for a Sustainable Future. Just go online to give to WBAI.org. That's give and then the number two WBAI.org or call 212-209-2950. That's 212 212- 209-2950 during today's show, and we'll be happy to send you a copy. But don't forget to make that $50 donation in the name of Leonard Lopate at Large. And uh, if you do make a call, we thank you very much. Uh, Mr. Hamilton, can you talk a bit about the, the rights of nature movement? This is one of what I think are exciting frontiers in climate law and one of the strategies that might help us to roll back the domination of fossil law. The idea of the rights of nature movement is that we should extend legal personhood, the community of things or people that have legal rights to include non-humans. The idea is that if we say that non-human animals or rivers or even entire ecosystems our legal persons, then we'd be able to much more effectively protect their interests. It's a way of shifting our thinking away from looking at nature as property, something to be exploited and sold and used for human gain, and recognizing that we live in an ecological community. And if we're in a community, we need to grant recognition to other members of that community. One of One of the uh, reasons why this seems to fit well with our legal system is we already treat things like corporations as legal persons. Corporations have rights. 
why can't we give Rivers rights is the basic argument. So has it ever been brought up in a court case? If we look beyond the borders of the United States, then yes, this is actually a legal idea that is in the ascendancy. Ecuador has constitutionalized the rights of nature. A lot of other Latin American countries like Bolivia and Panama have started to recognize the rights of nature as well. And then there are lots of different instances in New Zealand, uh, India, recently a series of court rulings in Colombia have granted legal personhood and rights to various aspects of non-human nature. So internationally, this is a movement that is gaining a lot of steam. Within the United States, there have been some efforts, sometimes in indigenous jurisdictions, sometimes in rural townships to grant the rights of nature. This also happened in the city of Toledo that tried to grant legal rights to Lake Erie. In almost all of those instances in the United States, however, either state legislatures or courts have rolled this back and said it's not permissible and nature rights don't exist. You mentioned expansion of tort law and the public trust doctrine as other ways that we can replace fossil law. The expansion of tort law would basically try to use already existing common law tools to hold fossil fuel producers responsible for the damage that they're doing to the environment and to human health. There are a lot of cases brought by cities against fossil fuel companies for damage to public property. And I think those are promising avenues for accountability for the climate crisis. But in order to make those things stick, we do need to reform tort law in some various areas. There are a lot of problems in bringing these cases with notions like causation, showing who's responsible for some of these problems, standing, who's allowed to come into court to bring these cases and what types of harms are admitted under existing tort principles. So adjusting some of the ways we think about classic tort law principles to include the harms we associate with climate change would be one way to expand that. And basically what we're talking about is the law being able to recognize that the diffuse and long-term nature of climate change is something that requires an extension of the normal way we think about tort law when somebody hits you with a car. Climate change doesn't always look like that, so we need to reorient some of the ways we think about that. You are co-founder of the Climate Defense Project. What are some of the project's achievements, and have you been successful in encouraging attorneys to work on this issue? So we started this organization right out of law school, and the very first cases we got involved with were the Val Turner cases. So a lot of what we've done over the past few years is try to promote the use of the climate necessity defense as a tool for climate activists. And given some of those victories in the Valve Turner cases and then other great cases brought by other attorneys around the country, that legal goal of expanding the use of that defense has really started to gain traction. There's now a new legal tool that can sometimes be used by climate activists, and we hope to see it spread to different states in a way that is generally trying to build a more robust legal defense capacity for the movement writ large. So we're starting to see a lot of that happening. We're trying to see change in the criminal legal system to allow for climate activism. And more recently, we've been focusing a lot on the divestment movement, trying to target the financial backers of the fossil fuel system, looking particularly at 
universities. We've been trying to hold them accountable for misappropriating university endowments um, by by funding fossil fuel companies in a way that's very detrimental to those universities, communities, and purposes. Didn't climate activists persuade Harvard University to decrease uh, its emissions on campus, on campus and to eventually eliminate its use of fossil fuels? Did Harvard they did, also and that was divest the its investments in fossil fuel industries? Campaign. I'm sorry? Did Harvard also divest its investments in, fo- in fossil fuel industries? Yes. They, well, they made an announcement that that is what they plan to do. I think there's still a lot of work to do in holding them accountable and holding them uh, to those commitments. But they did essentially announce last year that they would no longer be investing in fossil fuel companies. Wasn't the Environmental Protection Agency given authority under the Clean Air, Air Act to regulate carbon dioxide emissions from existing power plants? Uh, yes. And but language written into the law opened a loophole. So there's some complexity here involving the Clean Air Act, which was written before we really knew about climate change and global warming. So in one way, we can look at the Clean Air Act and see that it's not expressly written to deal with climate change, and it's not necessarily the best law to do so, because it tends to focus on smaller emissions of chemicals that are released in my, more minute qualities, uh, quantities, but produce um, severe toxic injuries. Global warming, as we know, is something that's caused by carbon emissions by everyone. Obviously, industry is the great culprit here. But the Clean Air Act generally is supposed to clean up air quality in the United States, and it gives the EPA authority to issue regulations to do so. So another way to read the law is that it does give this kind of flexibility to the agency to encounter a new problem like global warming. And the Supreme Court in 2007 agreed with that. They said that the EPA had to make a decision about whether the Clean Air Act applied to global warming. Under the Obama administration, they made that determination. And since then, unfortunately, we have yet to see a very robust administrative response under the Clean Air Act to deal with climate change, partly due to political changes, partly to do to the way that courts have interpreted what the agency has tried to do. You're listening to Leonard Lopit at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. My guest is Ted Hamilton, a climate movement attorney, writer, literary scholar, and the co-founder of the Climate Defense Project. He's written a book called Beyond Fossil Law, Climate Courts and the Fight for a Sustainable Future, published by O.R. Books. Now, what is the status of the case of West Virginia versus the EPA? This is a case that involves lots of states and industry players trying to prevent the EPA from really regulating climate change emissions, greenhouse gas emissions. Under the Obama administration, the EPA issued something called the Clean Power Plan, which tried to move the country away from uh, coal combustion. Even though that regulation was killed by the Trump administration, and now Biden has announced that they're going to replace it with something new, this case has kept going. It's still alive, even though that regulation no longer exists. And on February 28th, there was an oral argument before the Supreme Court in which those states and industry players are essentially asking the highest court to issue a broad ruling limiting the EPA's ability to address this problem, largely based on the idea 
that the Environmental Protection Agency does not have the authority to interfere in such a drastic way with economic activity in the United States. We know that shifting to renewables would require a big economic transition, and these states want to prevent the federal government from being able to do that. So the the argument is that the EPA can dictate changes only at individual power plants, not across the entire power sector? Right. And what the Clean Power Plan tried to do was to encourage what are called beyond-the-fence line measures so that states could look at different ways of sourcing cleaner energy away from specific coal plants. What these industry players and states are trying to do is say that, no, the EPA is very restricted in the type of regulation it can issue. It can only look at specific sources and Older sources are often subject to less regulation. So the outcome of what those states and industry players are asking for would would be that the EPA has far fewer tools at its disposal to mandate changes in the energy grid or the composition of the energy grid. Essentially, they would be just picking out much smaller sources of pollution and gradually getting them to be a little healthier mm-hmm. rather than a broader look at the overall emissions of greenhouse gases and trying to bring those down in a comprehensive manner. Didn't Supreme Court Justice Brett Kavanaugh participate in the West Virginia case when he was a federal appeals judge? Would he have to recuse himself? Well, recusal decisions are very discretionary at the Supreme Court. There's no outside body that tells them when to recuse themselves recuse themselves. And so Kavanaugh likely would continue to participate. Some observers have also raised concerns about uh, Justice Barrett because of her family's ties to Shell Oil. My best guess is that there will be no recusals and they will still participate in the final decision regardless. If the Clean Air Act is weakened, are there other environmental laws on the state and national level that can uh, protect us? Lots of states have started to implement much more robust regulatory schemes to try to deal with climate change. So especially in some states like New York, Massachusetts, California, there are now concrete targets for lowering emissions, sometimes expressed as net zero commitments by 2040, 2050, things of that nature. And those states are really starting to spend money on shifting away from fossil fuels or shifting away from dirtier fossil fuels to cleaner ones. One of the challenges remains building out green energy infrastructure, but those laws exist. They're on the books in some states, and they are much more direct than the Clean Air Act is in dealing with this problem. At the national level, unfortunately not. We're still dealing with a great absence of federal policy to address address climate change. And so one of the things that we all have to think about is how likely do we think it is that Congress will successfully pass climate legislation? We know that that just failed recently. We can be skeptical, perhaps, about the prospects of that in the near future. And then we've also got a Supreme Court that does seem very skeptical of administrative action to deal with the problem, too. So that leaves us in a place of looking either to state policy or to other types of legal ideas that can work around the political logjam that so far, after decades of knowing about the issue, still has not really given us any good tools for dealing with it. Well, I'm assuming that state policy depends on how much coal and, uh, and oil is uh, in each state. That's so, right. So states um, like West Virginia 
might be very, or Kentucky might be very different about this than New York or California. There's some truth to that, although in general, coal, largely because of market forces, a little bit because of regulation, coal is largely on its way out. We need to be sure that we're protecting communities and workers who've been invested in the coal economy for so long. But the writing is on the wall when it comes to coal. And this is largely, again, outside of government action. The energy sector generally has moved to first natural gas, but already renewables tend to be a lot cheaper than fossil fuels today. And so market forces are pushing people away from the dirtiest fossil fuels regardless. But to address the question of how dependent certain states, certain parts of those states have been on coal, one, we need to think about social policies to keep them at work and having a robust social safety net, but also building a new energy grid that would be a bit more rational in the way it can move energy across state lines. Decentralizing the grid, I think, is a great idea to try to allow for the role of renewables and not make certain localities so dependent on what the whatever the major energy source might happen to be in that state today. Well, there is a, a has been quite a pushback. President Trump uh, talked about how the windmills were going to cause cancer, and just recently, I heard that Greta Thunberg uh, has been accused of simply being a mouthpiece, reading stuff that uh, others, environmentalists, these evil environmentalists, have written for her. Well, I don't want to get into the specific debates about, you know, uh, Greta versus the others. I think that. Well, I just meant that she's always been presented as a positive force and now uh, they're trying to smear her. Right. Which is not necessarily surprising. I mean, this is another instance, I think, where defenders of fossil fuels make relatively disingenuous arguments. And the reason I say that is because we already have the tools to move away from fossil fuels. It's not a matter of speculation or some hope for a great technological fix somewhere down the line that we don't know about. We can produce enough energy through renewable means, and we have ways of thinking about load capacity, et cetera, that essentially the issue here is political will. It's not science or implementation. It's devoting the resources to the right types of projects and removing the political obstacles to that transition. I think that's really what's going on here. Um, And other countries, some states are proving that this can happen. We just really need to speed up the process. We don't have much time left, but I just wanted to address another aspect of your life. After working for several years as a lawyer, you decided to get a PhD in comparative literature. So what role do you think the study of literature can play in engaging with an issue like climate change? I think there are a couple of ways in which literature and culture writ large are are relevant to this. One has to do with understanding how we've gotten to this point. So this book focuses on law, and I think legal activism, social activism is extremely important as we're trying to transition to a more climate just society. But we also need to think about assumptions about our place in the world, the relationships between humans and nature, the history of conflicts between different communities of people over the environment. And literature is a great place to look at that, how our understanding of our place on the planet 
has shifted over time because we need to understand how we got into this predicament in order to get ourselves out of it. Then we can also look at literary study as a way of crafting new environmental imaginations, telling ourselves stories either about dystopian futures or utopian futures or currently existing environmental relations can give us some guideposts to what needs to be a transformation on many fronts, not just legal and political, but cultural, aesthetic, ethical, religious. And I, In have, other words, I have to leave it there, unfortunately. But okay. thank you so much, Ted Hamilton, his book, Beyond Fossil Law, Climate, Courts, and the Fight for a Sustainable Future, published by OR Books. And that brings us to the end of our show. My great thanks to Deborah Freeman for preparing today's interview. If you're just discovering this program and would like to hear more of our one-hour deep-dive interviews, you can access our more than 600 past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. Our podcast, which recently surpassed 1 million plays, is available on iTunes, Apple, and everywhere else that you get your podcasts. And if you'd like to write to me, my email address is leonardlopate at WBAI.org. Before I sign off today, I need to ask you to support WBAI to keep the show coming to you weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m. We are asking all of our listeners who have the means to do so to make a contribution at whatever level they're comfortable with by calling 212-209-2950 or by going online to give to WBAI.org. That's given then the number 2, WBAI.org. Please do that right now because we need your help to keep bringing you this unique in-depth content information you don't usually get anywhere else. And as I mentioned earlier, anyone who makes a contribution of $50 or more in the name of Leonard Lopez at Lodge right now can receive a copy of the book we've been discussing, Beyond Fossil Law, Climate, Courts, and the Fight for a Sustainable Future by Ted Hamilton. So why not make that call right now at 212-209-2950 or go online to give to WBAI.org. And you might also consider becoming a sustaining member, what we call a BAI body, a buddy. And during this Women's History Month, we are offering the 8-gigabyte Women's History Collection and a WBAI tote bag to everyone who signs up to become a BAI buddy for $15 or more. Either way, I hope you will call right now because WBAI relies 100% on listener donations. We don't take ads or foundation grants, which allows us to be completely free speech radio, and we don't have to give in to any pressure to satisfy any advertisers. So please go online to give to WBAI.org or call 212-209-2950 to play a part in keeping this historic station alive and thriving with your tax-deductible support. And we hope you can join us tomorrow when my guest will be Azar Nafi, discussing his book, Read Dangerously, The Subversive Power of Literature in Troubled Times. We'll see you then.